Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU, as always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. And we are here for an extra, extra special event. We are live at the Boulder Public Library. We're in the Canyon Theatre with, is this our first Pulitzer Prize winner author? I wish I could say yes right now, but it's not. It's actually our third. But, but it's our favourite, so uh, yes. we'll go with that. We'll go Certainly with that, the funniest. Certainly the funniest and the most beautifully dressed. So we're going to get to that in just a moment. Arson, who have we been reading for this month's Radio Book Club? We're reading uh, Andrew Sean Greer's new book, Less is Lost. And of course, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Less. So we're very excited to have him here for this book. We are delighted to have Andrew here. As I said, we are live at the Boulder Public Library. As we're speaking, I believe this is your first in-person event for the book. Yeah, this is my first event on the road, so who knows what will happen. <laughs> Mishaps. <laughs> this could be life imitating art a little bit because Arthur Less, we are delighted to have him back for Less is Lost, but he's also on the road and he is actually in a slightly different uh, road a trip this time, a literal road trip around the US. So first of all, we're delighted that Arthur Less has returned for Less is Lost, but was this something you had always planned to have Arthur make a second appearance? No, no, no. In fact, after I won the Pulitzer Prize, my agent told me, she said, Andrew, now don't think about writing a sequel because you can't do that with a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. <laughs> She's very stern with me. And I always take her advice, and I didn't. And I wrote another book, and I got 100 pages in, and I said, this book's terrible. If only I had like a hapless protagonist and a romantic, chiding, ridiculing narrator and an elderly writer to put on the road. And I did. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write whatever I want to. Well, we're really, really thankful you did. I mean, I think. You know, this book, I feel like the comedy is even amped up another level. And um, one of the things that struck me when you won the Pulitzer was, you know, it's one of the few Pulitzers I just had belly laughs about, you know? And so I guess I want to ask you about writing comedy and trying to hit the right chord, because I think comedy is tough for some readers, you know? And you do it so well. Is there kind of a secret to it? Or is there, you know, have you always thought of yourself in kind of in that vein? No, no, I don't, I don't think of myself as a, as a funny writer. Um, uh, my other books, um, you would not crack a smile, but I, I'm kind of like a lighthearted person. And so when my friends read this book, they were like, oh, it sounds like you. You know, it sounds, you could sort of tell by looking at me or listening to me. And, uh, but for me, writing comedy, this time it was just like my sort of more serious books that I was thinking about something really difficult and I just thought about it, I just decided to laugh. You know, it's, it, it, that's what it feels like for me. You know, writing less and less is lost. I had to sit in my chair and I thought, what is the most humiliating thing that has ever happened to me? And how can I make it funny instead of self-pitying? And then I can kind of get over it myself, you know? And there's, there is subtext to this. I actually find it quite poignant. There were parts where we revisit Les's, well not revisit, but I think visit for the first time Les's childhood in certain ways. He actually on this road trip is revisiting his own past in, in very clear ways too. But there's also commentary a little bit about America. And there were a few characters asking, 
what if the whole idea of America is wrong? Somebody asks America, how's, how's your marriage going? You know, all those states, are you still, uh, is it still working out? Is it time for divorce? What was going on that made you want to put that in as well? Well, there was an election in 2016. <laughs> and I, like half the country, was, was, was um, baffled by the result. And I thought, I better go to those places that I don't understand. I mean, my instinct is to go to what I'm afraid of as a writer, and what I'm afraid of is Alabama. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to Alabama, and Mississippi, and Arkansas, and uh, I rented an RV for six weeks and traveled, um, and went to little bars and diners and talked to people, and not about politics, because I'm not a great, I have strong political beliefs, but I'm not a good ranter. I'm much, it's not a talent I have. Um, I'm much better at like uh, I'm a listener and I think the joke should always be on me I'm the funny part of the story I'm the funny thing that shows up in a bar in Alabama not the people there well Arthur Les does the exact same thing he's on this road trip in a kind of a minibus with a pop top and for reasons that you will find out when you read the book he has a, a traveling companion who's a pug who become this really good friend to Arthur and this lovely companion on his road trip but he does end up in these campsites and he does end up in the real deep south and um, in these bars but he doesn't really he doesn't encounter hatred at all I mean certainly that's not what I read people do ask him in very coded language oh are you from the Netherlands this is the theme throughout oh you must be Dutch you're from the Netherlands <laughs> wink um, and, and it's, it's almost sweet and he tries to fit in as well but what were your real life experiences Mine was was also. I mean, I'm a very neutral presence in in those places because I'm being I'm taking notes. I'm not um, causing trouble usually. And you know, I'm a I'm a six foot two middle aged white guy who leaves the bar at eight p.m. I'm going to be fine. Uh, and people people were very kind to me. But I, there was one place where the woman asked if I was from the Netherlands, and I thought. I know what she's doing. I think a lot of queer people have noticed this, that people say something like, you remind me of my cousin. And like, you're nothing like their cousin, but you know what they're saying. <laughs> You've learned something about their cousin. Yeah. So I just expanded that. I mean, that's what humor is, is when you multiply it. So if everyone thinks he's from the Netherlands, it's this funny code. So, Do I sound Dutch to anyone? <laughs> <laughs> So while he's on this road trip, he's also on the pri a prize committee. He's, on, he's one of the people who's supposed to be meeting to give out a major literary award. And um, there's a couple aspects of this I, I'd like to get into. One is the advice his agent gives him is to not read anything, and the, just by divination will he know the winner, which I thought was pretty funny coming from the Pulitzer Prize winner. And then, and then the, the other thing about the committee is an old rival's on the committee, who Les remembers has called him a bad gay. That's right. And that seems to haunt Arthur a little bit. <laughs> well, I think, I, I mean, I drew, I have been on some of those committees before and they're prestigious and important, but they're ridiculous because in a way we're all have joined the committee because we want the prestige of being on a committee. Like it's a little bit of a trick because they don't really pay us. So then everyone's jostling so that they can say they chose the winner. but. Um, I also do think of, I, from in, in, it's in less that his nemesis calls him a bad gay. And I, so I thought about like, 
my responsibility as a writer to represent people in my community, but also to um, tell a story and make it my own. And that can sometimes be in conflict with the, the, the sort of political story that needs to be told. You know, I make fun of people in the queer community, mostly myself, and, and I, I think that's, um, you know, that's, you, it, that's very personal. And I, so it's something I think about, whether I'm a bad gay. I don't think so. I, I don't think so either. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, what we would love to do is have you read from this. And uh, so what, what is the selection that we're going to have you read? We're, we're going to hear uh, about uh, a moose. There's a, a moose is a major emblem in the novel, and I made them put it on the back cover, too. In fact, I made them um, make um, air, car air fresheners in the shape of a moose to hand out with the book which are, I think are available tonight. Not, not to the radio audience, but... Yeah, this is, you know, we don't have smell-o-vision quite yet, but we're going to have to have people imagine that the, the air fresheners come in two flavours. One, I, well, one is non-scented, which I guess is neutral, yeah. but the other is road trip, essence of road trip. Yeah, they gave me a list of like a hundred different smells it could be, and they were all like, you know, banana, Christmas, and one was road trip. I'm like, that's, that's got to be it. And we did smell it, and it smells... It smells like a bad road trip that you covered up with air freshener. <laughs> yes, we will have to let the radio and podcast listeners make up their mind as to, or use their imagination, what, what do you think road trip might smell like? But yes, we, we came to the conclusion it was something that's trying to mask something that could be un- unmentionable, yeah. uh, something's happened in the car or maybe the hotel that you've just checked into. So that's the scent right now. But we're going to hear Andrew Sean Greer read now from Less is Lost. All right. Another story comes to mind. Les was doing a travel piece in the Northwest and for detail and local color, headed to a hot springs recommended by his lodge. As Les tells it, he followed a trail along a noisy creek that clattered like a short order kitchen. He came upon the springs, peeled off his clothes, and settled naked into the pool. Mist haunted the surface of the water. Above him, the stern mountains folded their violet hands, looking down like chess players upon a castled king. That was when, very quietly, but startlingly, stepping gingerly among the stones, out of the forest came an enormous moose. It walked over to Arthur Less and sat beside him in the pool. A moment of silence. Less urinated freely in pure terror. As he tells it, however, in those few minutes as man and moose, they watched the setting sun. Arthur Less felt chosen. Struggling for years in Robert's shadow, then a castaway in the wide ocean of possibility, and suddenly this great creature had chosen him. Les felt a metamorphosis beside this massive moose, his muse. Did you hear that sentence? (laughs) I can't believe I wrote it. And when it left him, headed back into the woods, when the moose moment had passed and Les had survived it, he accepted he could survive anything. He could survive without Robert. He could survive any change, any moose that came his way. He would be a writer and to hell with worry and doubt. That is what I want. I want to be chosen. Chosen as Arthur Les bumbling among the larches was chosen. Where is my moose? Isn't that promised in the Constitution somewhere between quartering of soldiers and foreign emoluments? It is a country of grand injustice. Les blunders and fails and is rewarded with a moose rewarded with Palm Springs, rewarded with me, Freddie Palou. And I sit here at my conference in Maine and wonder, where is my moose? 
Where is my moose? <laughs> that's Andrew Sean Greer reading from Less is Lost. And that's Freddie. That's Freddie Plew who's, we're, we're hearing his perspective. But Freddie plays a huge role in this one. He's sort of, there was a beautiful happy ending at the end of Less with Freddie and Arthur and I was so glad that Freddie came back and you know we don't want to give too much away but what why did you want to write so much from Freddie's perspective in this one well I wanted it if it's a story after the happy ending it needs to be more balanced I thought and maybe it's because I was trapped in the pandemic for years with my boyfriend and a dog and I was driving him crazy and I was like it's not fair for it to be all about Arthur less you know it should be it has to be more about Freddie and I think by the end of the book, you get that sense that, that it, it, it needed to balance out. In terms of some of the comedy, um, there's one theme that comes through that just made me laugh out loud, huge belly laughs. And this is when the agent comes through. And you have this agent as a sort of disembodied, we only hear on the phone. And it's always, I have Peter Hunt on the line, please hold. And this is the theme when um, Peter Hunt is calling for Arthur. And, but there's, it's always followed by then Celine Dion sings a cover of some unlikely song, like usually some heavy metal song. Heavy metal songs, yeah, yeah, so I can imagine being on hold hearing Celine Dion singing Metallica <laughs> while we're waiting for the agent. So I just loved that as a theme the whole way through. Is that your experience? You mentioned your agent earlier on. Do you get tortured by Celine Dion doing various different uh, covers when you're on hold for your agent? <laughs> no, that was my elaboration on the experience that just seemed like I was like a running joke um, but it is always I do always get a call that says please hold I have Lynn Nesbitt on the line uh, oh it's I have Lynn Nesbitt on the line please hold and then there's a, a pause it's not like a normal phone call it comes from from the the, the universe somehow so I, I thought that's a good deus ex machina for the book because it's the agent who's like here's where you're going next it would be like if the, when the president calls you. That's what you expect, right? I've got the president on the line, and you've got a whole... Oh, yeah, I mean, I, there's probably writers in the audience, and if you have an agent, you were just waiting for that call. I remember in 1998, I bought a cell phone, and that, those were expensive, and my friends made fun of me because I hated waiting all day by the phone for my agent so then he could call me while I was out. So one of the things we touched upon, though, is is music in the book. So you have that music, but you have karaoke bars, and you have, I mean, I, I kind of imagined if there was an actual soundtrack to this book, it would be almost unlistenable, right? You have, you know, every, every version of Hey Jude you can imagine. Hey Jude, yeah. And the trick about that is that, um, is that you can only quote a certain lines of a song before you have to pay rights. And you would, I thought that, Na 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 <laughs> na 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 na. Hey Jude was like one or two lines, but it's like four. <laughs> could you, could you make the argument that the na 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 that you're writing about is actually different? Because that's pretty. I think that's in the public domain at this point. Na 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 na. I think so. I think I got around it by saying after a lot of na na nas. <laughs> hey Jude. Yeah. <laughs> One of the other running jokes is the efforts by Arthur to speak German. And this is so funny. I mean, it's all throughout less. And he just has a sense that he's just you know, fluent in German. So the way you write it in both books is the in bad English translation of what it sounds like to German speakers. And it is absolutely funny. So is this something, do you have aspirations to speak another language and you've been sort of brought down to earth? 
Yeah, well, I, I, I live part of the year in Italy, in Milan, and I have never taken a lesson, and I just barge into conversations. You know, after about a half a bottle of wine, I'm fluent in Italian. We all are. <laughs> and um, I look at their faces, and they understand it, but, I, but something else is coming through. And usually at the end they say, never lose your accent. Because <laughs> they find it so charming. But also it was because in, I, I, didn't, I hate it in a book when uh, Americans are always fun, making fun of people who have learned English as a second language and their funny accents. And I'm like, Americans never learn other languages at all. And, and maybe it's living in a foreign country when everyone speaks a lot of different languages in, in, in the rest of the world. And I thought, let's make fun of the American and his funny accent and his confidence and the arrogance of the American. It's also, it's just tickled me. <laughs> so I was thinking maybe we should do something I don't think we've ever done. And maybe you could re have a second reading. Maybe we just need to hear a little bit of that German. <laughs> so <laughs> so there's, there's a wonderful scene, you know, the, the science, the writer from the first one comes back, HHH Mandarin. And so this is a reference to that. But it's like Yoda, Yoda German. It's like, happy to meet you, am I? Well, because in German you have to end with the verb. So I thought that'll sound just as ridiculous. You know, there's also in the German translation, I read this to German audiences, and um, they think it's a hoot. Because <laughs> finally somebody's not making fun of the Germans. The following interview was translated from the German. Mr. Les, thank you for coming on the program and for joining us from the United States. Here is my thanks. I'm sure our audience is delighted you could do this interview in German. So few Americans speak our language. Here is my German. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> we only have a minute, but I wanted to ask about your upcoming travel. I hear you're going on a tour with the writer H.H.H. H. H. Mandern, who is quite famous here in Germany. Uh, it seems a mental illness. Mr. Mandarin me asked to go with him, but he has yes. <laughs> mental illness indeed. You seem to be very different sort of writers. We hear your next book, Swift, is a comedy, and Mr. Mandarin is known for science fiction, not for his comedy. There is well-known robot detective. Yes, there is. Why do you think Mr. Mandarin asked for you in particular? We have an interview. He liked my interrogation of him. Have you interrogated him? <laughs> I have, in fact. It was difficult. I think it's not unfair to say he's famous for being a little touchy. Some say he's not mentally stable. Are you nervous? I do not understand. Are you nervous to be intimately entangled with such an erratic companion? I do not understand. <laughs> are you nervous? We are not to share hotel room. Ah, 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 ah. Well, Mr. Luck, Mr. Lass, with your new book and with your tour, we in Germany wish you the best of luck. Ah, ha, ah, ah. Arthur Lass's attempts at German. I mean, I think at one point somebody says, please stop speaking German. You're giving me a headache. And that was a German person to him. But he's, he's so confident in his Germanic abilities, even though he's got such little confidence in so many other aspects. I mean, that's such a charming part of his character as well. I'm glad. Well, I mean, I find when I speak Italian, it's just, I mean, you just feel like this new other person, and that person is more confident and talks about the different subjects and has moves their hands around, you know, and, and it's fun to be that person for a little while. So the, the author he's with 
when he departs and he gives Arthur the van that he's going to travel in and he bequeaths the dog temporarily, but he says, he tells Arthur that he's reckless. And I thought that was really interesting because I, I didn't think, I wouldn't have described Arthur that way, but then once he says it, it like clicks in your brain, like he is kind of reckless, isn't he? This guy venturing out onto the road. What he does. That's what I, I wanted there to be a character who would describe him in an unlikely way. Um, because he's, he's a, a highly anxious, terrified, he's a coward, basically, but he doesn't know what he should be afraid of, you know, like buying a stick of gum could be terrifying. And so he'll, he'll, he'll go out of his way and find himself in these dangerous situations because he's tried to avoid some other danger that actually was not too terrifying at all. So I think he's reckless because he has no real sense of reality. Is HHH Mandarin based on anyone that you've met because he's a funny character. He, ju he just appears briefly in Less and now he's back in a pretty significant role. He sort of is the catalyst getting Arthur on this road trip, but is that anybody you've uh, encountered? It is. It's not George R. R. Martin, who seems like a <laughs> lovely person. Uh, did take the, that is one R too many in that name, but, and H, H, H has two H's too many. But I, it's mostly, I, you know, I met in my younger days as a writer, the former generation of the sort of great American novelist, which was always a white man and irascible and kind of a jerk, but when you got a couple beers into him, he would tell you a story. Like that, that generation, their time is gone. You know, those don't exist anymore. So I thought of, of them and their, um, their brusqueness and then their sort of tenderness under that camouflage. There's a great scene in the book where uh, I think it's a Czech editor or writer tells Les, you know, the, the difference between European and American writers. And I, at one point he says, do you know the difference, what, what, you know, what an American writer, you know, what's the problem with American writers? And Les says, commas. <laughs> it's a copywriting joke. Yes. <laughs> but, but there is a whole theory between the difference between American and he has a whole theory between what's the difference between an American and a European writer. And one of the things I thought was interesting is his theory is everybody's a New Yorker. Like in Ameri all American writers are New Yorkers at heart in a way. And, you know, being a bookstore in Colorado, sometimes it does seem like that. Like, we're so happy to have you here, but sometimes you know, like the author goes on a four-city tour, and it's like New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Okay, they've done all of America. And I, I thought, you know, what are your thoughts about that and, and where kind of publishing is, is, is now, and is it less New York-centric than it used to be, or is, is American writing still like that? I think it's less just because no one can afford to live in New York or San Francisco or L.A. or Boston or Chicago, and so everyone has started to you know, spread out in the States. For me, I, li I did live in Montana for a while after living only on the coast and in New York City. I moved from New York City to Missoula, Montana, and it, I really was shocked at how much I didn't know about the whole writing world out there and traditions. And I think Europeans don't get those books. They're getting uh, a, a, a strange version of American fiction that doesn't include a, a, a diverse, um, sampling. And they're always 10 years behind in some way. You know, they're reading Brett Easton Ellis's newest work, and who's a fine writer. Um, uh, 
So that's why I wanted a character in there that would do that, but I wanted a character who would sort of bring it to Les's attention that he didn't know anything about the rest of the country and would sort of put it in the reader's mind too. Well, no, you, do, you live half your time in Italy, and so you've, you have this interesting perspective of being in another country, being in another country and seeing how other countries view America, but then being in America and seeing how we view ourselves. You know, you mentioned, obviously, the, the election in 2016 and the state of the country right now, but has, being, has living in Europe changed? Like, how has that impacted your view of this country? Because you're seeing it through other people's eyes as well. I, well, the best thing about living in Europe is that the news doesn't arrive in the morning for six hours. <laughs> so you wake up, I wake up at 6.30, and it's, it's six hours that I can get work done and not worry about what's happened. And then I catch up and the day is lost and Instagram starts up and everything. But I also, um, I think when I'm here, you know, a lot of my friends who are, I live in San Francisco, so they're very liberal and they get upset about like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And when you're, when you're over in Europe, they don't talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and you realize, oh, that's nobody. You know, I don't have to worry about that person. I, it, it sort of, it, it clarifies. Um, what's really going on. We get caught up in minutia because we get caught up in our own news cycle and it doesn't play in the same way over there. I mean the fact that you have brought Arthur Les back which so many people, everyone here is so grateful for because he's a beloved, beloved character. But one thing I'm always fascinated by, not necessarily by authors who write sequels because you've kind of answered the question, but when you've such a strong engaging character, like where did they go for you when you finished the book. You have the deepest relationship with these characters. So where did they go for you when you finished writing about them? Well, it could be I have the deepest relationship, although I always think readers bring half the book to it. So they, if it says he walked into a middle-class um, uh, home, you have something in your head that I don't have to describe that is a totally different book from anyone else who picks it up. So. Um, I probably love him less than readers do <laughs> because I have to be with him <laughs> for five years. Uh, but he was, it's clear, every book I write, the book kind of kept, wants to keep lingering on in my head and I have to cut it off. And this one, clearly, I wasn't done at all because it was such a joy to, to be with him, honestly. And also, everything in my life, I could easily turn into something for a book like this. You know, it just seemed funny all the time, and I didn't want to give that up. You, later in the book, at some point, you talk about narration and novelists, and you have this point where novelists like to see, need structure and symmetry, and you know all, all these things that go into making a good novel, but that might give them a handicap, say, upon seeing people really as they are. And I thought, you're, you know, you've written several novels now, and your people seem like real people in the books, at least, you know, to some extent. Yeah. yeah, but talk about that kind of like dichotomy, that need for structure out of kind of what's really a messy world. Well, I mean, the, the terrible secret about novelists is that we, we don't really think about characters or place. We think about words and, and structure and, and, we may, and symmetry. Those are the secret things we think about and worry about. And so you can be very lazy. I have been often as a writer and just have like a, a diner waitress and I just give her a beehive and funny glasses and she says, here you go, dearie. Now, that's not a real character. That's a cliche. 
I didn't spend enough time on that person. And I was writing to myself and saying, you know, you have to, each one is a protagonist. You know, they've walked in from another story where they're the main character. You have to treat them that way and spend five minutes on what's special about that character. Just, not just be a good writer, but I think it's moral in some way. Well, your care and attention to your characters are what makes them so special, and it's what makes uh, these books so wonderful. So thank you. Thanks for the laughs. I mean, my goodness, we could all use a laugh, and you've given them to us. And then I reread less as well oh. in advance of this, and I was like, oh, this is so, it's so good to laugh at a piece of art. And so thank you for all the laughs, and thanks for uh, sharing, you know, your, your backstory with all of us this evening. We're going to say goodbye to the radio audience because we're going to have more conversation with Andrew Shunkreer. But in the meantime, we'll say adieu because we've got to get fancy. What, how would you say, how would uh, Arthur say goodbye in bad German? <laughs> I would say, what is it? See you again, we will. See you again. <laughs> see, we, see you again, we will, in the podcast-only version, because do stay tuned for uh, more with Andrew Sean Greer to talk about Less is Lost. But thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as we always do at the end of the radio broadcast, we announced the next book that we are reading. Uh, who have we got lined up? We're going to read Ted Conover, who's a journalist, and he has a new book called Cheap Land, Colorado, where he spent some time in the San Luis Valley talking with people who live off the grid. And that's a big area. San Luis Valley is, I think, bigger than Rhode Island. And so there's a lot of strange folks down there. And so <laughs> we'll talk to Ted. And that's going to be a live event at the bookstore on November 2nd. So do join us for that. And if you can't join us in person, you can catch that on KGNU and the Radio Book Club podcast on the fourth Thursday of November. In the meantime, thank you so much for tuning into the Radio Book Club. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Lots more conversation with Andrew Sean Greer coming. From KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host... Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.